Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Investor Frame Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Sparks, and on this show, we ask successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs to share their stories so we can all learn from their experiences and get closer to the things that we want in life. Today, I'm here with a friend of mine, Carrick Young. Carrick is a real estate investor. He's a broker for Cushman and Wakefield, does a lot with the commercial real estate space, um, He's been a whale and a member of our community for a long time, so has been learning a lot of these tools and frameworks and implementing into his business. I'm very excited to hear him share. He's got a, such a, a diverse background and in a, un, a very unique way to approach real estate. Again, one of the things I love so much about Carrick is like he doesn't have a cookie cutter approach. He plays his game. Um, so Carrick, welcome in, man. It's great to have you, and I'm excited to hear have you share your story with us today. Thanks, Paul. Excited to be here. Well, kick us off, man. As you know, we always start with a six-word update. So what is your six-word update today? So six-word update is patience is key to getting there. And so to elaborate on that a little bit, we've taken a lot of runs at multifamily properties over the past couple months. Nothing has come together. Um, we just recently had one where we actually had a PSA we signed it. It was all agreed to with the seller. And then someone came in last minute, took the deal from us. Coincidentally, all of these deals have over the past pretty much week fallen back out of contract. We're back in the mix. We're talking to the brokers again. We're in the running and I'm a lot more hopeful that we're going to get one this time around. And so I think that's just been a common theme that I've noticed over the past couple months is just I naturally want things now, but hey, maybe it doesn't come now, but there's going to be some opportunity, whether it's this or whether it's another one in the next month, six months, 12 months. You know, and like a lot of one, a lot of the things that we talk about in our community is that, you know, our biases and it's hard to lose deals. You know, it's hard to let deals go and patience is key to getting there, right? And and so I'm curious, like, when you think about letting these deals go and then letting them find their way back, I mean, tell me more about the bias that, that allows you to do that and like what you're sort of fighting against. Yes. Yeah, so I think what I'm fighting against is a limited mindset. And that's, it's, you know, hey, it's only the 17 unit deal. You know, we're so far down the road. What if we don't find another one? Or albeit on the brokerage side, that was huge for me when I started off. I just graduated from college. I was cold calling every day. And when I'd have that one call where it's like, oh, there's some glimmer of hope that this person is going to sell or I'm going to be able to represent them in like a tenant rep capacity on a leasing basis. Um, it's you really want to hold on to it. The client might not be a good fit for you. The situation could be super messy, but my mindset, especially early on, really led me to just go down all of these rabbit holes that were not a good use of my time. And mm -hmm. so I think over the past five or six years for me, it's really been a journey about understanding that more there's always opportunity out there down markets up markets sideways markets and so with that it's just about realizing that you know you're not defined by any one deal that you make or any one deal that you lose it's about how many deals can you chase how many deals can you go through the process and keep your spirits up because most of those they're not going to work out for one reason or another 
but really the successful people that I've met, and again, whether it's on the investing side or whether it's on the brokerage side, they're the people that can take 99 no's, but they've made their career off of being persistent and getting that one yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you remember this, but last last couple of weeks or a month or two ago, we were talking about in the in the whale club about this story of the tallest tree. I don't know if you heard me say that. Yeah, okay. So it's this idea that you know there's two there's let's say there's two people, and one the first person is trying to grow the absolute tallest tree as possible. They want the tallest tree. The other person is more concerned with the process of how to grow the tallest tree, right? How to grow trees. And what happens is the, you know, of course the person who's trying to grow the tallest tree, well, you know, a lightning storm comes, hail comes, you know, winter comes and their tree dies and, and they get so frustrated because they are trying to figure out how to grow the tallest tree. But then you've got this other person who's very process oriented and they're curious about the process, right? Hailstorm comes, they're like, interesting. I didn't account for that. I need to account for that in the next, you know, the next time I do this. And it becomes, you know, this, we say that the process is the shortcut, you know, trying to go after the biggest deal is like trying to grow this tallest tree. The best way to get good at growing trees is to enjoy the process because the process is the shortcut. And it seems like, you know, that applies very well here. Don't getting, you know, not letting your, your biases like FOMO or loss aversion, you know, you're attached to it, right? Or, you know, fear that if I don't get this one, there may not be another one, but we know that not to be true, right? Of course, that's a, that's a, that's a very like result-based approach. If you can take a much, you know, process-based approach, it seems like that results in more success a lot faster uh, because, you know, you're not tied to this one particular outcome. I'm just here to figure out how to get good at finding deals. Yep. hundred percent. And I mean, I think I've found that for me being focused too much on the results leads to a lot of comparison and comparison has never worked out well for me. It always, it's always comparison to the negative. It's why aren't I doing as many deals as that guy? Why is the last property I bought? Why isn't as big as the property that this guy bought? Why is there not as much of a value add as this guy's property? And so I think for me, I've kind of, I've learned and I'm still working on it, but that if you get too results focused, it, it never sits well. But if you focus on the process, the results tend to take care of themselves if you're doing the right things. Yeah. Well, I want to hear more about your background and you know what you're building too. And, and, and do me a little favor and tell us about your business. Tell us what it looks like because, like I said, you have a very um it's not a cookie cutter based business. And I really appreciate that about your approach to business. So tell us what it looks like and tell us what you're driving towards. Yeah. So just to give uh, people some background on me. So graduated from college, went straight into commercial real estate brokerage for, like you mentioned, Cushman and Wakefield, which for those of you who don't know, it's one of the top three global commercial real estate firms. Uh, we have offices in every major city in the U.S. and most of the major cities internationally. And so with that, one of the things that I didn't realize is that there's so much more to the commercial real estate space aside from just the buying and selling of buildings that people's minds might go to when they hear commercial real estate broker. Uh, there's actually a huge component of it that's on the leasing side. 
And so with that, it's you're, you generally either represent a tenant in helping them find and lease space for their business, or you'll represent a landlord and help them find tenants to fill and occupy their space. Um, how things worked out, I started off in the office leasing space, and that was predominantly representing tenants in finding spaces to lease for their business. Um, coincidentally, at that same time, I bought my first rental in Jacksonville, Florida. And so even from a young age, I would have been 22 at that point. I understood that brokerage can be more of a roller coaster. You know, you're going to have some great months, probably going to have a good amount of zero months as well. And that, you know, you have to have some savings that it's not necessarily a reliable business, especially at the start. Um, and so for me, getting into investing was a way to create some reliability amidst the roller coaster of brokerage. And so those two things, they started my life at pretty much exactly the same time. And so fast forward to today, um, at Cushman on the leasing side, I do predominantly tenant rep work. And so that takes the form of representing companies pretty much throughout the United States um, that are doing, and you know, it's not the hottest product type right now, but a lot of the clients that I work with still have a need for office space. Um, and so representing those clients on lease deals throughout the US, and then as far as my real estate investing business, um, that looks like 38 units spread throughout several states. We've got Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, and then Ohio. At this point, um, we're really focused on the Southeast markets. Uh, we think the fundamentals of those markets are really strong. And we also have a very good team out there. Uh, we work on a couple of things. The main thing is buy and hold. We're going to start getting a little bit more into upping the amount of flips that we do, probably turnkeying deals for some investors. Um, and then, like I was mentioning earlier, we have a goal to take down about 75 units through smaller multifamily purchases. And, you know, for us, we don't necessarily have ambitions to be the syndicators that are taking down 100, 150 unit apartment complexes. We're more in the, let's call it 10 on the lower end, up to 40 and 50, probably depending on price and geography. Um, and so really to build a holistic business of stuff in a personal portfolio, and probably more JVs of those smaller uh, apartment buildings. Why do you like those so much more? I think that for us, it's easier to get a handle on them. Also the ownership structure, I think syndications are a great vehicle. Um, I think that we have the ability, we have a pretty strong ability to access capital for the deals that we do. We actually use private money to fund 100% of our deals. And so whether that's if we take something down on the single family side, or whether we bring in partners on uh, the multifamily side, um, for us, it's turned out to be more favorable from a structure standpoint and what those structures can lead to profit wise to structure it like a JV as opposed to what you'll see in more of the traditional syndication models. Yeah. You don't have to give up as much, right. With the typical 70, 30 or 80, 20 splits that you see with these syndicators. It's like the, you're doing a lot of work, man, to only take a little chunk of it all. And again, this is all preference based, but it's like, it's almost, there's this little sweet spot between the single family operators, you know, 
or very small multi-units, four units, eight units, things like this. But, you know, anything over like 100 units you're starting to play with, much larger institutional capital players, you know, people that have, um, that can operate on smaller margins as well. And so it just, it compresses the cap rates. It becomes more, more competitive, but that sweet spot of 10 to 50, you know, multi-units, like that's where I hear a lot of people finding their success. You know, they're, they're taking these deals down with private capital. The debt structures are more favorable for the operators and things like this. And, you know, I, I, you know, I think it's a smart move based on what you're trying to do. And I, I know a little bit about your solvable problem, but I want to hear you tell that, right? Because I think uh, what, I, what I like to do on this show is to separate why, you know, why we're doing the business from how that plays into like, with, what are we actually trying to design in our life? What's the life that we want to live? And then how do we use our real estate as a tool to help us get there? Um, so, so maybe tell me a little bit about your solvable problem and how you see these, you know, your brokerage and the rentals and all this stuff that you're doing. How does that play in with what you're trying to design in your own life? Yeah, no. So great question. So I'd say, and I think I've kind of explained this to you before, but I kind of have two hills in my mind. First one that let's call it the first solvable problem is getting to 10,000 per month from more passive, more reliable sources. And I think that gives me a very decent level of comfort, provides for a nice lifestyle, and then really allows me to make the decision. Any money that comes in over that, is that something that I want to take and go on a fun trip? Is it something that I want to reinvest back in the business, buy more rental property? Um, it gives me a lot of freedom. The next step above that, let's call it 28 grand a month. And that's more of a, I've pretty much got money to do all of the things that are important to me in life and have a lot of fun with that. Um, but that's one where I kind of look at it as that's a little bit further out. And sometimes it can be intimidating. It's like, hey, I'm at this number right now. And that number is like way up there. And so I like to look at it as, hey, I'm here right now. That $10,000 a month number is not too far away. Let's focus on getting there. And then once we get there, I can see and I know where I'm going to the next mountaintop. But I like the barbell approach that you describe where you have upside, you have reliability. And then unfortunately, sometimes you have stuff that falls into the middle of that barbell. Um, but kind of what my picture looks like is on the upside, I one of the things that's important to me being a little bit younger is that my time frame is longer than some other investors. I'm a little less risk averse than probably your average person. And so with that, I'm more willing to devote capital to quote unquote riskier plays that could pay off in the long run without necessarily seeing a return right now. And so for me, that looks like I'm in Silicon Valley. I've been able to luckily have some connections with companies that are in seed or just the early stages. Um, some of them have been clients through Cushman and Wakefield and have had the opportunity to invest in those. There's not necessarily a return that I expect this year, not necessarily a return I expect the next year, and really not the year after that. But at the same time, it's one of those where, hey, five years down the road, the return on that investment that I've made could be gigantic. It could also be zero, but it's yeah. it's a risk that I'm willing to take. And so on the upside, I kind of have that. On the reliability side, that's where the real estate business comes in. 
And that helps to smooth out the ups and downs of brokerage, which unfortunately for me, brokerage is kind of that thing where it's in the middle. Sometimes it's upside. I could have a client call and say, hey, I need 100,000 square feet of space. That could be a lot of upside. Or it could be a get into a groove of, hey, I'm closing two, three, four deals every month. And this is starting to feel like it becomes reliable. And maybe it is for a period of time. Um, but a lot of times what I've seen from seeing more senior guys, that's a little bit of just a, a illusion. It's always you do have the ups and downs. But I think smoothing out the brokerage with the reliable side of the barbell, that's where I'm headed with that $10,000 a month. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and like we talk about like the ideal situation where it's like there's nothing in the middle everything fits perfectly on one side or the other but you know things have to move through the middle oftentimes and like you know i i, I do want to come back to a, a deeper discussion on that barbell but i have a question for you about you know your passive income and your your solvable problem because like that range of like 10 to $30,000. You know, I'm fortunate to work with a lot of investors that come in through the whale club and we're kind of helping them implement these, these tools in their business. And that is like the most common, like I would say almost 80 to 90% of people are like, I, I want somewhere between 10,000 and $30,000 a month in passive income that would allow me to live the life that I want. And that's great because we're all solving very similar problems. So we can help each other through that. Um, and what I found is like, you know, so you, you mentioned you're at 38 units right now and let's just, let's just say that that 30, let's call it, you know, 40, cause that's a little easier to multiply by, but let's say that 40 units equals $10,000 a month. Now I know you're not quite there with that, but let's just say that it does. And in order to triple that, to get to $30,000 a month, let's say you said 28. And again, I'm just going to use easy math because I need it to be easy and simple. But think, I think that a lot of people, the mistake that I, that I make and that I've seen other people make is saying, well, I've got 40 units now. If all I, if I just triple it, I get to 120 units, then I'll be where I want to be. There's a big difference between managing 40 units and 120 units. And so like the question is, yeah, but what if you got to 120 units and you're like, I hate this. Like, this is not what I wanted because oftentimes like we don't necessarily know, um, well, we haven't accounted for all of those things. And so it's like, well, where in the process did you stop wanting that? Was it at 50 units? Was it at 60 units? Was it at 80 units or a hundred or is it, you know, so when we think in this all or nothing, I want, I've got 40 now, I want 120 there. And you just barrel down and you just go for the next three years. And now all of a sudden you have what you say you wanted, but like, it's, it's not, you know, really what you wanted because you, how could you have known that when you were at 40? And this is the power of the investor frame. In my opinion, this is the title of this show. Knowing what I know now, what I choose to opt into my current scenario, because a lot of people, and this is what you do really well, is a lot of people just put their head down and they're like, I'm at 40, I want to get to 120 and I'm not going to even pick my head up until I get there. But like at 50 units, you might want to ask yourself, well, knowing what I know now, would I choose to buy 50 units again? The answer is yes, great. Okay, you get another, you know, nice little 10 unit that you take down and you're now you're at 60 units and you're like, well, knowing what I know now, 
would I choose to buy 60 units? And maybe you find that that point at 70 or something is like, actually, there's a more efficient path to get to $30,000 a month because you've been in it for long enough. Now you're starting to get all these optionality. You have the right tools to, to keep your head up and pay attention and ask yourself these questions. And so you don't end up building a business that is like a prison for you. And, and I'm not saying that that's the case for everybody, but the, I think my point with kind of saying all this is like, often it's, it's easy to say, well, I'm at 10 and I want to get to 30. But the mechanism that got you to 10 may not always get you to 20 and you might, or to 30 and you might get there and be like, I hate this. So what's the mechanism to ask yourself as you're building that out? Well, knowing what I know now, does this still make sense? Because I reserve the right to change my mind. Yep. No, and I, I completely hear you on everything you're saying. And, you know, to switch it from concept to something that's been on my mind a lot recently is looking at the portfolio from kind of a holistic view and like a portfolio strategy view. I was actually listening to, I guess, a Steve Trang had on his podcast the other day, who the quote that stuck out stuck out to me the most from that was that and the guy he like averaged buying 100 houses a year or something through like decades but the quote that stood out to me was that he was saying his when he was happiest was when his personal portfolio was at roughly 50 units and he was like there are times when it would get over 100 units and he's like way too much management headache way too much involvement for me and so what he would actually do is say his portfolio got to hundred units, he'd take two of those, sell them, take the equity, roll it into one higher quality property. And so in doing that, he's repositioning his equity and transferring his portfolio from hundred units down to 50, better quality, easier to manage, and just a, a, a smaller quantity. Um, and so that's something that I've really, I've really taken to heart since then. I'm actually selling one of the Jacksonville properties where the return on equity is extremely low because I've owned it for five years at this point in Jacksonville is just shot up and it's kind of like, okay, what's an easy way to get closer to the 10 grand a month that I'm looking for. And it's like, well, easy answer take the hundred grand of equity that you have in this property. That's really only making you 175, 200 bucks a month, move a hundred grand. You could put it in another single family, but I mean, you'll be leveraged at 40%, 50% this time around. And instead of making you, you know, 200 bucks a month, that property will make you 400 bucks a month just yeah. because you have so much more down on it. You're probably in a better quality asset as well. And so I've started to really take a deep dive into the portfolio and figure out, you know, what can I do with what's already there to get me closer to where I'm going as opposed, what can I do to kind of grow the beast, if you will, that sure will also get me closer, but can also have some of those maybe more negative side effects, more management, more headache that comes from running a larger business that you were just talking about. Yeah. Larger isn't always bad. It's just like, <clears throat> I think the mistake in investing is just putting your head down and not considering the actual solvable problem, which is why that's so important. Having clarity on like, but what do you actually want? Because if you say that you want time to spend with your family and to travel and do all these things, I'm not saying everybody wants that, but if, if, if that's your case, well, 
is it really the best idea to have a volume-based business? Maybe we can find ways throughout the process. You know, we say this orientation all the time in Whale Club, least amount of risk, least amount of effort, most amount of options. And I think that serves us very well as we're moving forward because in the same, in the, in the example you just gave, I'm not sure who the guest was, but it's like immediately you can start realizing this is getting me further away from what I want because he probably had clarity on what he actually wanted and how he mm-hmm. wanted his life to look like. But that's the trap that a lot of us can fall into. And again, that's what I appreciate about you is like you're, you have a, um, a, a very tight feedback loop, right? You do something and now it's like, okay. And we call those micro steps, right? It's like we take a micro step. Okay. Well, how does that feel? Does, is this, is this aligned with what I want my life to look like? What's the return on equity in this deal? Maybe I could recapture this and position it somewhere else to have less risk and less effort. And that, and again, I think that's the power, not only of having an operating system, but having a language to describe why you're doing these things. Cause a lot of this stuff, I think you do fairly intuitively and naturally, but it's, you know, it's, there's a lot of power, I think, when you can bring language to it and you can say, well, this is why I'm doing this because I want to take a micro step. I'm not going to scale until I hit predefined targets. I want to make decisions that are biasing the least amount of risk, least amount of effort, because I want the most amount of options. And when we get attached to, you know, these people that make these grand plans, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get a hundred units and it's going to, each one's going to cash flow X amount, and then it's going to equal this and I'll be done. And you just barrel forward. What you're doing is you're you're eliminating all other options that might get you there faster with less risk and less effort. Um, I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think you touched on something that I also want to highlight and that our discussion really got me thinking about was recapturing and reallocating resources, which is essentially what this is. I mean, I like the example that you had talked about previously where it's like, what if instead of going out and pushing or spending the marketing dollars or whatever it is to go generate 10,000 more dollars a month, what if you just took a look at everything you're doing right now, canceled some credit cards, ended some subscriptions, and what if you were able to make 10,000 more dollars a month just by doing that? How much easier is one than the other? And that's kind of what I've been doing with the portfolio is what's already there that I can reuse for a higher and better use as opposed to like the Jacksonville property. I mean, I can reallocate the $100,000 into something that's going to get me closer to the $10,000 a month. I mean, I could also go out, make $100,000, put that into something very similar and sure, maybe have a slight bit more, but how much effort goes into that second scenario compared to how much effort goes into that first scenario? A lot less in the first case. Oh man, so much more. Um, But we're not hardwired that way. Most of us, most of us are hardwired. I'm like, you know, I just call it the salesperson bias, which is I'll just sell more. I'll just go sell more. That's, that's the only tool that we think of. And we say to ourselves things like, yeah, but I got my expenses dialed in, you know? Oh, Paul canceling my credit card. What's that going to do? I already look at it all. It's like, yeah, but there's a difference between opting out and opting in, right? You think that you need all that stuff because at one point in time, you decided that it was necessary. And because we get so attached to our decisions and the things 
that we think are a good idea, it gets really difficult later to let them go. And so that there's just like these little tricks that we can do on our brain to like switch it into our favor, like put the odds into our favor as opposed to being against us. And it's just little stuff like that, little tools and tricks to rethink because it's, it's most of the time, the answer is not more. Most of the time you have the resources, you're bringing in the revenue. It's already there for a lot of us. It's just about how do we make better use of it? Because that's a lot less effort than it is to go out and try to double your deal volume or double your lead flow or something like this. Um, 100%. Which means you're taking on more risk, more effort, outlaying more money to get all that stuff. But, you know, of course, no one's talking about this. Everyone's yeah. talking about the next strategy you can use to add to your portfolio. You know, the next marketing channel that's going to be the ace in the hole. And this one's going to get us all the leads and deals that we want. But, you know, that's almost rarely the case. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your barbell a little bit. Um, so you got these 38 rentals and are these single family rentals? Are these small multis? What are they? Yeah. So it's, it's a combination. It's single families got some, a handful of small multis in the two to four. And then, um, biggest thing that I own is a 10 unit building in Cincinnati, cool. Ohio. Nice. And so you acquired that mostly with, it sounds like private money. Yeah. So, um, the majority, I would almost say all of those deals, we, they've all been value add deals. And so we've been able to, um, use social media presence. It's not, it's not mine as we were talking about before. I have a very limited, at least at this point, social media presence, but, um, one of my partners, she has a large Instagram and we've been able to find a lot of people through there to engage as debt lenders on these deals. And so, more often than not, it'll work as a, we'll go in, we'll raise funds from debt lenders, pay them a certain interest only percentage on their money. Um, and then from there, we'll take down the deal, we'll do the renovation, we'll refinance or we'll sell it later on. And that's been a strategy that's worked really well for us. Um, we keep money in reserves, just, you know, hey, if there's a gap between, we thought renovation was 40 grand, it ends up being 50 grand, we have funds to cover different things like that. Um, but it's led to a lot of really good relationships with people who aren't necessarily interested in investing in real estate for themselves. They have capital, their focus is, you know, on a W-2 or something else that matters to them, but they're really looking to, what do I do with this money to generate a better return for me? And so it's been nice because it allows us to grow our portfolio, but it also gives us the opportunity to form relationships with these people and really show them, Hey, this is what passive income is. Cause a lot of these people we've found, you know, they've done the traditional route W2 put money in a 401k or in a brokerage account in the stock market. And so the idea of, Hey, I give you guys a hundred thousand dollars. You guys pay me 800 bucks a month. Um, it's, a, it's interesting to see kind of the light switch in their eyes. Like, Oh, so I give that to you. I'm getting money in return, but I don't necessarily have to deal with any of the headaches, do any of the work, deal with contractors, property managers, leasing, any of that stuff. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly how it works. Yeah. <laughs> so no, it's, it's worked very well for us. And I mean, our plan at this point is like I was saying, some of the larger properties joint venture on those. Um, but then the smaller let's call them between 60 grand and 200 grand continue to use those debt investors to uh, circle through those projects. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Raising money is interesting because I haven't figured out where that sits on the barbell just yet. Like, is that an upside play? Like I could make the argument that, yeah, it is an upside play. Um, but I could also make an argument for like having reliability there. So like I go back and forth all the time with like, well, how, as I'm, as we spend more time trying to raise money, where does that sit? It's great when you already have a social media thing, like it's a forcing function. Like you were going to do it anyways. You needed to do it anyways. And through that process, you're educating, you know, um, industry professionals, active W2 people, how they can take that money and, and invest it with you, earn this great return, help them get to their solvable problem, right? Where you're educating people on, well, it's, it's the light bulb that goes off when it's like, well, so if you have a million dollars in your, you know, your retirement account, which I'm aware that's not a small amount, but like, if that's the case and you invest with me at 10%, you, your wife can stop working. She makes a hundred thousand dollars a year. And they're like, wait a second. <laughs> lending is, <laughs> lending is different than investing in the stock market. And they start to kind of like, aha, you know, so part of this is educating people on how we can help them get to their solvable problem with the least amount of risk, least amount of effort, you know? Um, I found that language to be very powerful as I'm raising money, because again, when you can show that to people and you can show them a path to hit their solvable problem through you, you become the conduit to that. Again, the relationship becomes reliable in my opinion. Yeah, no, and I, I'd completely agree. And I mean, like I was saying, just seeing kind of the light go off for people who I think they've been conditioned to just not view it in the way that you and I are talking about now to see that hey, there's this whole other world of stuff that they were never exposed to. Um, that's a really that's a really cool feeling. And like you were saying, to be able to help someone get closer to their solvable problem, um, that's a pretty rewarding and fulfilling thing to me. Yeah, man, it sure is. How does your brokerage fit? And where does that fit in with your strategy and where you're headed? Yeah, so um, kind of like I was saying, I view building the real estate portfolio as something that's going to generate long-term wealth for me. It smooths out the ups and downs for brokerage. So brokerage can sit in the context of real estate turns into more of an upside play because it, it gives me options. It gives me the ability to, hey, do I want to take this really cool vacation? Um, do I want to invest this money back into more properties or into something else that like an initiative that we want to do in the business? And so at this point, I don't have any plans to stop doing it. I think that it also gives me really good experience for being able to talk to brokers if I want to invest in deals. I mean, one of the biggest things is, um, so like Marcus and Millichap is another big brokerage. They're huge on the apartment side, especially in the Southeast. Um, and just telling them like, hey, I, I work at Cushman and Wakefield, there's automatically a level of credibility that I get from that, that if I'm just me and I'm just, you know, working for 1736 Holdings, which is kind of our investing vehicle, that doesn't mean anything to them. But again, it's it's gone a long way and proven to be very fruitful and beneficial for us, for me to be able to say, hey, I have experience on the commercial side and it's at a company that you've heard of before. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, no, I think even though, like I've mentioned, the office isn't the greatest product type right now. 
um, the clients I have are still rocking and rolling. And so I think ride the wave. Yeah. Ride the wave, man. Well, there seems there's like, there's always been, um, it's like, you're either in one camp or the other, you're either an investor or you're an agent. Um, there's obviously people who kind of do both, but what I found is like, you're either an investor or you're an agent. Um, but you're both and you're kind of getting exposure to both sides of things. And I love your approach to that because you're playing your game, right? This is not a right or wrong way. This is a preference thing. Like keeping that business gives you all sorts of other currencies, you know, authority and credibility with people when they're talking, it's going to get you relationships that you otherwise just wouldn't have access to the private money that you've raised, the opportunities to invest in, you know, these Silicon Valley startups that you're describing there, all that comes from your relationships. So when you start reframing some of this stuff as to like, what currencies am I getting from this? I think we have a tendency to think in terms of just money, right? Just money. This, this makes me money and the highs and the lows are all over the place, but it's like, yeah, but you're only in that business. Um, well, one of the reasons you're in that business is to make money. And yeah, it can be fairly unreliable at times, but there's also a lot of reliability in it when you consider the other currencies, right? The reliability you get from the authority and the, the influence you gain from being there, the relationships that you, you're going to continue to reliably get throughout that, that's not, that has nothing to do with how much money you make there. You're still going to get those things, um, which is, again, what I'll miss I think when they consider things in a vacuum of just how much money is this going to make me, you're not considering the full picture here. Yeah, no, completely. And I mean, one thing that's been super interesting to me since I've started is that, like you were saying, people tend to be either an investor or an agent. And that is super true in this office. I mean, there are 60 other brokers here. Uh, most of them have probably been in the business for 15 plus years. And the amount of people who own any real estate aside from their own home is like, is close to 0%. And so when I tell them about, hey, this is, yes, I do this, but I also go invest in properties in Cincinnati, Ohio, and Augusta, Georgia, they're like, but that's not like Silicon Valley. That's like really far away. I'm like, yeah. it is, but got a team in place, got people that I trust and have certain systems in place to protect the investments. Um, and they're like, wow, that is, that's so cool. I never thought about it like that. Um, and I was also, I was in the kitchen the other day explaining the concept of wholesaling to one of the guys. And I mean, he's been in the business probably 40 years at this point. And he, he was like mind blown. He was like, so they put a property under contract. They sell it to you at a higher price, never own the property, but make the spread between what you decide, what you agree to pay them and where they have the property on contract. I was like, yeah. And he was like, that's fascinating. Hmm. And it's just, it's so weird because that concept to me is like, yeah, it happens all over the place, like very normal, but to people who, yes, they're involved in the real estate industry, but they just aren't familiar with some of the same concepts that are everyday concepts to you and me. It, it kind of blows my mind in return. Cause it's like, there's, you might think you know a lot about whatever field you're involved in, but there's always so much more. There's always someone doing something interesting uh, that you might not have heard about. Mm -hmm. Optionality, 
right? That's what it presents you is, 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 is more options. Um, it's not surprising to me that most people see it one way or another. They can't see the, you know, the optionality that, that having both hats, wearing, being able to wear both hats presents. Uh, my wife's got her, you know, retail license. And it was like, somebody needs this, right? We need to have options here because I don't, you know, I don't want to be tied to like, if wholesaling off-market real estate doesn't work, we're screwed. Mm -hmm. That was the business I was building. It's like, we have to figure out how to find a seller off market, get them to sell us their house at a ridiculously low price. Otherwise we're screwed, yep. right? Well, that's a pretty fragile business to run, right? If you have more options, if you have uh, more ways to monetize deals or, or whatever it is, like you're going to be better off long-term. That's my opinion, of course. Um, yeah, I completely, I completely agree with you on that. I mean, to me, what seems almost unbearably risky is just having income that's coming from brokerage. Like I see guys here where it's, it's their only source of income. And I mean, talk about magnifying the ups and downs and probably just magnifying the downs, not necessarily the ups. It's like, I mean, if you're going, if you're, you know, establish couple kids, they're in private school and you go three, four months without doing a deal, which definitely happens. It's like, that's not, that's not a place that I would want to be in. And so, I mean, for me, again, going back to the whole concept of the barbell, I've got, you know, my equity plays, which is, you would say they're, they're there because I'm more risk averse or I'm less risk averse, but I also, I want to take those shots that have the potential to collapse time for me to get to where I'm going, but I don't want to put everything over there. I also want to counterbalance that with what I'm doing in real estate, that reliability, and then tack on some partial reliability, partial upside from the brokerage income. It's awesome, man. Well, let's finish by having you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how old are you again? I just turned 28 two weeks ago. Man, and it's amazing how much you've accomplished in such a short amount of time and the experience that you've gained I mean, to own 38 doors and be, you know, representing some of these really large deals that I know you take down. What's the greatest lesson you've, you've learned through this process and what would you like to leave the listeners with? Yeah. So I was at a talk um, a couple of weeks ago and the quote that stood out to me the most was one of the speakers was saying that through her career, she learned that not to focus so much on your weaknesses. Yes, everyone should have some certain level of proficiency in various things. But she, her thought was that, and I completely agree with this and have been working on it myself, is that if you take where your strengths are, whether you've worked to develop them or whether they're natural strengths, and continue to develop those, continue to focus on those more than you're focusing on making your weaknesses into average skills. If you focus on developing those strengths, those will eventually become your superpowers. And what leads to success in a lot of areas of life is not so much moving the weaknesses to average, it's from moving your strengths to superpowers. And so that's been something that since I heard that, it, it clicked for me that, hey, one of the things that I believe is, is my strength and can definitely be better at it, but is creating relationships. And similar to what you do, Paul, creating relationships and just because people like doing business with people that they like and trust, creating those relationships 
relationships to create opportunities is something that I've been moving to focus more on because I think similar to you, that's where I've seen most of the big deals in Cushman. Those have all come out of not so much me picking up the phone and cold calling someone because I'm so amazing at it. It's more so, hey, this relationship led to that relationship, which led to this other thing, which then that leads to this company doing this deal. And same thing for a lot of the really good deals that we've picked up. It's not so much, hey, we sent a postcard and this person responded and we closed them over the phone. It's more of, hey, this person knew that this was going on and we were able to pick up a really, really strong deal um, because we had that relationship. So just focusing, focusing on developing my strengths into superpowers and encouragement to everyone listening to, hey, yes, again, you need some level of proficiency in everything, but if you really focus on your strengths and developing those, you'll go a long way. Mm -hmm. You know, just to, to sort of add a little bit to that, um, there's a reason why we talk about our biases, you know, um, not because we're necessarily trying to like, improve on our quote weaknesses but like recognizing where we might be weak and taking that into account but playing to your strengths right playing your game to me is like a combination of two things it's like knowing where you're weak that's pretty dangerous <clears throat> if you don't actually have clarity where you are weak um it's not like saying spend all your time trying to improve your weaknesses we're not saying that what we're saying is account for it in the equation as you're playing to your strengths and playing to your game and turning those strengths into superpowers. I couldn't agree more with that message. I think it's spot on. Um, yeah, man, that's great stuff. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's been great, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Where Carrick, where can people find out more about you if they want to learn um, you're going to be, you're going to be joining CG, which I think is incredible. Um, you're going to meet a lot of people who I think are going to be eager to hear how you've built this. Cause it's very impressive what you've done. How can people get in touch with you? Um, how can they reach out and find out more about you? Yeah. So best would be uh, my Instagram, which again, I don't go on it a ton, but I'm going to get better at that. I promise Paul um, is at real estate Rick on Instagram. Awesome. Well, we'll put that in the show notes and you guys will see him uh, here soon. He's going to be, uh, you know, making big waves in the real estate world. I know it for sure. So thank you, Carrick, for joining me today. It was a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Paul. And for everybody else that's listening, we encourage you guys to, to adopt the investor frame. So knowing the conversation that Carrick and I just had, ask yourself, what changes do you need to make in your life or your business so you can get closer to the things that you want in life? Again, thank you, Carrick, for joining us. For everybody else, we'll see you guys on the next episode.